Good day and welcome back to the podcast. It's Saturday, 3rd of August, 1946. Once again, it seems like only yesterday we heard from Bet because, well, we did. Indeed, she had so much to say, she wrote two letters to her mum, and today she's writing a third. But before we hear from Bet in what is still a stinking hot Nanchang, we'll continue the official story of UNRWA. Chapter 18 In Noah's Footsteps The UNRWA livestock shipments might be called the most important waterborne migration of animals since the time of Noah. It was a costly and hazardous operation, but draft animals were absolutely essential to any real measure of agricultural rehabilitation. The UNRWA livestock fleet was composed of some 72 vessels, complete with stalls, special ventilation and maternity wards. It carried more than 300,000 farm animals overseas, 2,500 of them contributed by voluntary organisations and individuals. Several thousand U.S. farmers and farm boys, recruited and assembled by the Brethren Service Committee, sailed as livestock handlers. Trained veterinarians in each country gave instructions on controlled breeding and, with luck, it is hoped that the farm animal census in the assisted countries will climb back to its customary total in about 10 or 12 years. In many localities, the fastest way to get the crops in the ground was to use mechanised equipment. A single tractor landed and put to work in the spring meant bread for a thousand people that fall. So UNRWA sent in not only thousands of tractors, ploughs, disc harrows and other tractor-drawn equipment, but technicians to demonstrate their use. Tractor schools were set up and trained instructors sent out into the fields. The tractors were often used in teams of 20, moving from community to community to prepare individual plots for seeding. Rigged up with lights and operated in shifts, they worked around the clock in planting time. Efficient local operators and mobile repair shops are now in the UNRWA countries to keep farm machinery in top operating condition in the years to come. On farms that had been out of production for many years, Insects had practically taken over. UNRWA pesticides increased and protected the the after-the-war yield. In several instances, there would have been no harvest without them. In Sardinia, for example, a great army of grain-destroying locusts advanced on a bountiful wheat crop. Locusts are an ancient curse in the Mediterranean area, Farmers once fought them by beating gongs and clashing cymbals to frighten them away. UNRWA had other ideas. Gasoline flamethrowers and jeeps, trucks and a new chemical, gamexane, were quickly concentrated in Sardinia and put into systematic use. The locusts were routed, the grain saved. Another swift way of getting food to people was to harvest it from the sea. Many native fishing boats had been commandeered by the military. Trained fishermen had gone off into other pursuits. In several European countries and in China, UNRWA assisted in rehabilitating fishing industries from catch to can. 
a whole fleet of modern deep-water fishing vessels, along with hand-picked fishermen who could remain in a country to show how to use the new gear, were sailed across the Pacific, across the Atlantic and up from Australia. In addition, UNRWA sent in boat-building and repair materials, fish hooks, twine, cotton netting, cork and equipment for refrigerating and processing the catch. We'll hear more on the story of UNRWA in further episodes. But now, let's catch up with Bet's third letter in 24 hours. Mrs. Betty Souter, UNRWA Regional Office, Nanchang, Changsi, 3rd of August 1946. Letter number three. Mother dear. After finishing off the two letters last night, about 11pm, I went up to bed and all of a sudden realised so many things that I had intended to tell you. I hope I can think of them now. One is so important, in view of the things I was telling you about the various diseases and epidemics here, that I thought a letter, number three, was in order. Charlotte Ferry, our regional nurse, made a thorough check-up on everyone's vaccination and inoculation records and arranged for all necessary shots to be given last week. Actually... I was not overdue for any of them, but in view of things here, she gave me a needle for plague and for cholera. She has sufficient vaccines for our purposes for 12 months or more for all the diseases. I suffered no ill effects at all this time from the shots. Could you send me up some fruit salts? They would be most refreshing in this climate, quite apart from any medicinal benefits. They do not even have them in the Shanghai PX store, I think. But even if they did, I'm quite sure they would not release any for out here. Shanghai is very hard on the regions, whereas, in fact, they should give the regional people the little luxuries, if any. I'm wondering if Tom Fippen has been in touch with you or Dad. He wrote to me from Manila, saying he had been told to take his discharge from US small ships and go home. He did not seem very happy that his job was over, but he will, no doubt, like the other boys, settle down in due course. I gave him, a long time ago in Shanghai, a small parcel for you. It has been a long time being delivered, as his plans were altered, but I guess it has arrived by now. I do suggest that you have the silk made into a blouse. The colour should suit you. I was sorry to hear about Marge Blanks losing her baby. I hope that she and Maisie are quite well again after their holiday with mother. Molly, Duncan, it's quite a lot of news out of the Blanks family, which she always passes on to me. I do not remember Deirdre Duncan, even though I have seen quite a few photographs of her. Auntie Jess would have been thrilled to have Dosh and Bruce with her for a few days. It does seem a very long time since they had that weekend there before they were married. Aunt Jess sure is the one to wait on people. I think the move to the crag will be a wonderful idea, and I'm all in favour, and I like the plans very much. Norbury will be easily divided, I should think, and you have tons of stuff to furnish all places well. To me, the plan, as drawn by Jew in the Melbourne letter, looks pretty good, most compact and very suitable. The extra rooms upstairs will be a good idea too, as you can easily close them when they're not in use. You would never do that if the extra rooms were on the ground floor. 
a great conference is going on at the moment on the most unpleasant subject of rats. Marge and I have been complaining bitterly of the rats which inhabit our bedroom and have their fun and games there every night. I can stand it while they stay on the floor, and I have my mosquito net well tucked in around me to give me a sense of security. But when they start romping along the head and foot of the bed, it gets to be just too much for Betty Mavis. I have been disturbed almost every night in the last six weeks and have complained every morning. Hank and Kay have set traps for us and we have caught four rats in all. But the problem is not by any means solved. Last night was the worst of all. I did not sleep between 12.30 and 5.15 at all. Had the power not failed at midnight... I would have given up the ideas of sleeping and found a book to read. As it was, I just had to lie there awake, flashing my torch every now and again and chasing the brutes off my bed. We do not know why they come into our room, as there is never any food there, soaps or anything else they might like to eat. I was very glad to find today, however, that Claude had had some trouble with the vermin in his room too. So now, maybe he'll believe me and do something about it. We sure do have our hardships. Naturally, we are concerned because of the possible spread of diseases. The fact of a rat or two around the place does not, of itself, upset me as much now as it used to a few months ago. You see, Mother dear, for all our fun and experiences, we do have quite a few things to put up with. This is no luxury cruise, cook's tour, or any such thing. It is life in the raw in very many respects. A little amusing point, which I may or may not already have mentioned, and one very typical of China, its economic stringency and its thrift. Ama cleans my shoes for me. Now, I find she washes the boots rag every week. Can you imagine such a thing? Not only does she wash them, but presses and folds them too, and puts them back in the foot of the wardrobe in immaculate order and condition. China surely is a funny place, and I am certain that there is nothing we can do to change it in any way. They probably laugh at us a lot and think we are peculiar people, but I would much rather be peculiar in my way than in theirs. We had an afternoon tea party yesterday. In return for the lunch we had at Sunra last Tuesday, there were about 60 guests, and boy, did they go for our western cakes and sandwiches, just like a bunch of locusts they were. Their show of politeness at such a do is in the clear-the-deck style. They like to show their appreciation in a practical way. To use Pop's famous expression, they made that party look pretty sick, but they enjoyed it and we enjoyed them too. Fortunately, it was fine, so they mostly stayed on the lawn where the boys passed around the teas and food, and the two Amas stood at the little bar and poured wine for those who wanted it. Many of them spoke English, so it was easy to be sociable. They were an attractive gathering, really, all dressed in their whites, 
mostly they were in Western-style clothes, but with shirts outside the pants. But some were in long white gowns. This really is the last for now. Again, my love, Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne. And the featured tune this episode, coming in on the charts at number 46 in 1946, The Coffee Song, performed by Frank Sinatra with the orchestra under the direction of Axel Stordahl. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda, cause they've got to sell their quota. And the way things are, I guess they never will. They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil. No tea or tomato juice, you'll see. No potato juice, cause the planters down in Santa's all say no, no, no. A politician's daughter was accused of drinking water and was fined a great big $50 bill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. Need savor, coffee ketchup gives them flavor, coffee pickles way outsell the dill. Why they put coffee in the coffee in Brazil? No tea, uh uh-uh, or tomato juice, you'll see. No potato juice, cause the planters down in Santa's all say no, no, no. So you'll add to the local color, serving coffee with a cruller. Dunking doesn't take a lot of skill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. Man, they got a gang of coffee in Brazil. Hey, Pedro, get the flashlight. I cannot find the sugar. 